This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. And tonight is a special edition of Plato's Cave. It is the first of our two MIF specials. We are going to attempt to tackle about, I don't know, maybe 15 films. Good luck to us. Why we'll stop s- there? <laughs> I know, we'll just keep going and going. So we've got a lot to get through this evening. Um, I'm Sally Christie and joining me tonight is Cerise Howard and... We feel like we've turned the clock back in here a bit to 2018 because we've got a couple of special guests. And the first one is Lisa Kovacevic. Hello, hello. hello Lisa. Thank you for having me back. And Stuart Richards. Hello, I'm back. It's been it's been a little while, Stewie. It has. It's been a minute, yeah. <laughs> so, um, without further ado, let's get into this. I thought it would be wise to start with opening night, which was Thursday, the opening night gala. Um, which was the the world premiere of The Australian Dream, the new documentary about Adam Goods. So the venue has changed. For, for MIF's opening? For MIF's yep. opening. Yep. Um, so we're now at the convention centre, just because obviously lots of things are having renovations. But it was um, a really special opening night in many ways. The film, I thought, was really great. It was... Nothing amazing in sort of technique of documentary, but its content I felt was very important. It was well and programmed this year, I yeah, thought. Yeah, I think that yeah. too. And it was really well received, which sometimes doesn't happen on an opening night at MIF. No, and um, the guest of honour, I guess, was Adam Goods himself, which mm-hmm. the documentary is based on. And I felt the crowd were really wanting to show their love and support for this man and what he's endured in the past few years. Yeah, yeah. Stan Grant was there as well. He had a wonderful uh, sort of opening statement and had a seven-minute standing ovation. So it did. It lasted the whole, the whole cre- um, duration of the and credits. At the bit when Stan Grant was giving his introduction, he was saying about how amazing the song on the credits was, and he couldn't wait for everyone to hear it. Oh yes, true. I forgot about that. Um, so we should give the film a bit of context, really. Yes. Yeah. So it it's the Australian Dream is looking at. Adam Goods over God. What was the sort of year span from two thousand and eleven? It's his entire career. As well, a, as a footballer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but really it centred around the events that led to him His leaving... Retirement, yeah. yeah, to him leaving AFL. So Adam Goods is a revered um, AFL football player. Um, he's also He also happens to be an Aboriginal man. Um, and in... What year did it start? The, I the think bullying? around 2011, if I'm remembering correctly. It started when Adam uh, called out racism and um, at a football game somebody had called him... Someone from the crowd had called him an ape and um, he pointed that person out and had them sort of evicted from the stadium. That person happened to be a 11-year-old girl, 13-year-old yep. girl. Uh, so the media jumped on it and in particular all the shock jocks like your Andrew Bolts and stuff found it a good opportunity to tear Adam down for mm. having pointed out this young girl. Who, interestingly enough, made appearances in the documentary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, in, and, and um, you know, Adam himself sort of had had an awakening um, about his Aboriginality at that sort of time and um, had become more sensitive uh, and possibly aware of um, 
the ramifications of that kind of racism in that forum and had really wanted to take control of, of the situation. Um, and for that girl, he sort of made this, you know, statement to, you know, um, I just want to point out that, you know, the face of racism in Australia is alive and well and, and unfortunately it happened to be a 13-year-old yeah. girl yesterday. He didn't realise when he'd heard it that it was this young girl mm. and then by pointing it out he was sort of shocked but it was all sort of followed through. And um, But he sort of said, you know, we need to support this young girl and um, all the, the media at the time would sort of cut off that soundbite and sort of say that uh, you know racism has a face in Australia and it's on and exists on a 13 year old girl end of That's quote it. Yeah. Mm. and it didn't really expand on you know what Adam's intent really was um I sort of found this this film it's written by Stan Grant <clears throat> Um, it's directed by a British filmmaker um, called Daniel Gordon, I believe. Yes. Um, which at first I sort of took me aback. I thought, why didn't they get an Aboriginal filmmaker or you know, Australian filmmaker? But then throughout the course of the film, I thought, no, actually having an outsider's perspective on the history of Australian racism is actually quite good. Mm. Um, the th- it's interesting, though, that this film sort of has been released um, to co- almost co- co- coinciding sorry, with another film called The Final Quarter. Yeah, I thought the <coughs> release time of this was interesting. Yeah, so the final quarter is just those three years of his career and it's there's purely archival footage. Yes. There's no interviews okay. at all. And what I really loved about this film, and I think this film does a, a significantly better job at telling this story, and that's that it uses Adam Goods as a story to tell a history of Australia. Yeah. So it also features the stolen generation and just this history of oppression that has mm-hmm. taken place in this country, um, particularly the relationship he has with his mum as well and how trauma is inherited generationally. And I think that does it very, very well. It does. I I felt more um, affected by the other film, the film that is you, uh, listeners can actually watch this um, on Channel 10 at the moment, I think on demand, um, but because they sort of allowed people like Eddie Maguire and Andrew Bolt to literally hang themselves on air because there's no uh, there's no commentary in this in that film the, mm. the final quarter it's all just as you say archival footage of how the media responded to um, Adam Goods being booed because what happened was after that first event it escalated and he kept getting booed like mm. abnormally so like it was phenomenal how much he was booed and um, the Andrew Bolts of the world were saying oh it's because you're you're a shit footballer it's not because you're Aboriginal mm. and uh, Adam Eddie Maguire called, you know, made some other horrendously racial slurs, which I don't really want to repeat. Mm. And he, it was a slip of the tongue and he was just referring to minstrel shows. So bizarre. Yeah. Um, just, Eddie Maguire spoke about minstrel shows so often. I was like, you weren't even born at that time. Yeah. Why are you referring to... Th-? Anyway, um, but I found that more affecting than this documentary in a way because it really vilified people, those voices in the media that have control over the, the dialogue and the conversation. Mm. And they are all older white men. Mm. Um, in this film, they include Andrew Bolt and they include um, Eddie yeah. Maguire, but they they sort of um, they add. What they do is it's like they allow them to add to the contribution of the debate when they should they shouldn't. I don't mm. feel that they should have had that opportunity mm. to. They sort of cheapen the film with their supposed insights, um, which weren't insightful at all. No. They're part of the problem. You there know, there was one amazing moment at the opening night screening. There was actually quite a few when. <laughs> So there's one, I mean, Andrew Bolt thinks he's really insightful, but mm. he's not. He had this moment where he says, booing is a voice of the people. Yeah. And at that moment, this one solitary woman just goes, boo. Yeah. 
and everyone <laughs> cheered. Yeah, everyone, it was a really, yeah. um, it was really fun watching this on the opening night. The audience energy was great. There mm. was lots of sort of interaction, and um, yeah, I am. I don't follow football whatsoever, and I kind of felt that I was pretty uninformed about a lot of this stuff happening. So it was pretty eye-opening. Mm. So that was um, the Australian Dream, which was the opening night film. I'm sure I know that's getting a general release at the end of the month. It is, and I'd really encourage people to go see. I yep. still, even despite my criticism, it was beautiful. It and was. I and I took a friend who who admittedly sort of said at the end, "Look, I wasn't that woke to the mm. issue to mm. these sort of issues, and I really feel like I want to do better now." So it was effective. In in that way um, mm. but I'd really recommend people watch the final quarter as well I've watched them um, as companion pieces they're both wonderful films with merit you know mm. yeah and um, last night Stuart and I both saw another new Australian film which is highly anticipated which is Jennifer Kent who made the bubble Duck, her follow-up film um, called The Nightingale uh, Stuart do you want to kick off with The Nightingale? Yeah, so this uh, tells the story of uh, a young Irish woman living in Tasmania. Uh, Her... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Sally, but her time as uh, in servitude as a convict is up and yes. she's wanting her papers released so she can move on with her husband. Um, and I guess she is attacked, her and her family are attacked and the nature of that attack that just leaves her bruised and broken and alone Um I guess it has been revealed in a lot of reviews um, and she then wants to... It's a revenge tale. So she then um, partners up with um, an Aboriginal tracker who goes by the name of Billy and they sort of go north in Tasmania to Launceston or Launceston as they were. Launceston, yeah. Which was a good history lesson. (laughs) Uh, So they go north uh, tracking down uh, the perpetrators of this violence Uh, and... It is one of the most violent films I've ever seen. I caught the tram back, um, you know, to the CBD afterwards, and I was quite surprised at uh, just how anxious I was. Like, I've it's been ages since I've had a panic attack, but on the tram I was still very tense. Um, yeah, really quite a disturbing film, but also beautiful in moments. That the final scene is incredible Mm -hmm. Uh, and there are a lot of uh, beautiful shots of the Tasmanian bush particularly at night with the moonlight Um, yeah yeah this movie was extremely um, confronting Um, I I do watch a lot of quite violent films and when there's hoo-ha about you know people walking out things like that it's like whatever but um, yeah I can see why people would walk out of this movie it is yeah it's brutal it is very brutal but it is an excellent film having said that it's i'm not saying people shouldn't go watch this film they should um it looks at an extremely dark part of our history and i think the brutality of it is warranted it's important to acknowledge Mm. and uh, jennifer kent has given a lot of really wonderful interviews about this and i particularly like how she focuses on the faces of the victims a lot particularly in the scenes of sexual assault Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not about the perpetrator um, it is, and she's not shot in a way at all that uh, eroticizes her body at all. It is a focus on the face and her feelings uh, and her emotions. I also, one thing I found really interesting is her position as an Irish woman. Yeah, we talked a little bit about yeah. this last night, which I thought about more because, there's yeah, a, it is very interesting. There's a really interesting re- re- a friendship that develops between these two characters because she starts his connection with Billy as um, as a victim and really angry and 
And then he's quite puzzled because he's like, this is my land that's been taken. Mm. You know, you as a white fella has taken, have, have taken my land. And she's like, she almost doesn't identify as, as one of those white fellas. She says, I know what it's like to have a white fella take my land everything, and, and yep. everything from me. So as an, as an Irishman, she's almost in this liminal space between white and black mm-hmm. on this land, which I found really, really interesting. And this affinity that develops between these two characters as, as survivors. Yeah, I I did. I, I love this movie. I'm, I'm still really processing it because mm. it was completely devastating. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I do recommend that people go and watch this. Uh, it's a very, very, very different film to The Babadook. So if you're thinking that it's going to be something along those lines, it's definitely not. It is screening again at MIFF on um, Wednesday the 14th of August at the Astor, I believe. And that's The Nightingale. Yes, The Nightingale. Um, also, that Lisa and Cerise caught this week was Coco D, Coco Da. Mm. Um, Cerise, do you want to tell us about that? Well, I had a, a strong sense of anticipation for this film because I've really enjoyed the filmmaker's previous work. He had a, a film that slipped under a lot of people's radars at MIFF a couple of years back called The Giant, uh, which was a, a very peculiar sort of social realist monster film. Um, if you know what I mean, and you may not. But I don't know how else to pigeonhole this, if <laughs> being in the pigeonholing business. Um, it was a very peculiar, heartwarming film about, a, 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 I think, if I remember correctly, a kid with some sort of disfigurement trying to fit in, and there was a peculiar sport which he was trying to find uh, an entree into. But he also had these fantasy sequences where he stormed about the countryside, trampling things. And prior to that, he made this, uh, Johannes Nyholm's his name, I believe, made this extraordinary short called Los Palmas, in which uh, a tourist behaves abominably, and the tourist is, in fact, played by a human baby, and all of the staff <laughs> tending to him are marionettes. That sounds fantastic. That's hilarious because the baby just knocks everything over and just behaves (laughs) like a bad tourist. Uh, So I thought this is a really original filmmaker and... uh, and now we're into this this new films, this very peculiar horror film in which a trauma is revisited, um, not the actual events that have traumatised people, but further traumatic events are then uh, variations upon themes reenacted in a camping site between a husband and wife whose marriage is clearly under strain owing to the loss of an eight-year-old daughter three years prior. And they keep re-experiencing being menaced by a bizarre motley crew of uh, people and animals. They're kind of fairy tale characters, aren't they? They are. There's definitely a fairy tale element and there's puppetry in this and other animation. But then a lot of it's very grounded in real settings and it's just very menacing and, and quite disturbing. And um, really, uh, I, I was very impressed again. It, I, I don't know that it's quite as strong as The Giant because that, that film just cuts through a bit quicker. This one's got a little bit more uh, symbolism weighing it down, I think. But it's still a, a pretty interesting night out at the flicks, Lisa, <laughs> didn't you think? I thought so. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I mean, it sort of had me at fairy tale 
horror set in some Nordic forest. I was like, I'm, I'm in. Um, but, yeah, it sort of <laughs> reminded me of a horrific Groundhog Day. Um, for anyone who didn't grow up in the 90s, Groundhog Day was a Bill Murray flick, but it was a comedy where he wakes up every day. <clears throat> um, but with the knowledge that he's done, lived this day before, no-one else has that knowledge, so he learns. Um, they, this couple never learn. They never, they never become uh, woke <laughs> to their experience, I suppose. Um, so it's sort of, it's relentless. I found it really relentless in the, the repetition. But there is sort of some, there, there's some sort of subconscious learning that goes on where there's sort of, um, a, a sound might trigger something, hang on a minute, this doesn't seem right. And they sort of have some sort of education, did you think? Yeah, the, yeah. That, that, well, each time it begins again, they're more anxious at the outset as yeah. if there's some echo of the trauma. I think it is interesting what it has to say about how trauma can work. Um on people and uh, the, 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 the echoes, uh, the things that can trigger trauma aren't necessarily repeats of the original traumatic event, but mm. something else that just, and suddenly you're in that headspace and mm. that's what's happening to this poor couple. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's just such a, a very, very peculiar It's so peculiar. Film. There are some beautiful uh, cinematic or uses of the camera where every sort of scene as it ends, there's these sort of aerial shots yeah. of the scene um, th- as it's sort of completed its um, cycle, let's say, um, and, and all the characters are sort of posed um motionless um which was really haunting and i don't really care to delve into why but um <laughs> there was lots of really wonderful um rep- yeah uses of repetition that really worked well on the subconscious and i really enjoyed his animation as well which was this sort of rabbit family um in what was that silhouette sort of mm. shadow puppetry i yeah. suppose i think his background uh Nyholm is a an animator um historically but um yeah and he brings a lot of that craft into this film i, I was keen to hear because i knew you would have known who he was and his background mm. which I didn't so I was keen to hear what other films of his I should check out and I will check out The Giant because oh, it's fabulous yeah I was I was really intrigued yeah. by this film it's a t- t- tough one to recommend because it was harrowing <laughs> but it was good yeah. yeah strangely harrowing in a way that you can't quite put your finger right. on because it, it makes no sense but it makes a lot of sense mm. yeah it, it you know stays what I mean. with you, doesn't it? Like I trauma. have no idea what you mean. But <laughs> just, just don't go camping. Yes, is, is the is what in the, the Nordic the key woods. Takeaway: just don't camp. Yeah. Don't camp. yeah. Well, if you are keen to catch Coco D, Coco Da, it is screening again on this coming Wednesday, the seventh of August. Um, Stewie. You also watched, and then we danced. And then we danced. What an incredible film! I fitted this in at the last minute. And I'm so glad I did because I think this is going to be my standout of the festival. Uh, directed by, uh, I get his name up. That's a big claim, so early into the festival, Well, by I'm the way. going back to Adelaide tomorrow, so <laughs> it's a brief festival is for it, me. Um, Levan Akin? Levan Akin. And so uh, it's, uh, the central character is uh, Marab, played by uh, Levan uh, Gelbakani, uh, Gelbakiani, sorry. And he is a traditional Georgian dancer with this sort of ensemble troupe and it begins with the, the, he, their teacher, their choreographer um, kind of telling him and his female part, dance partner off because they're too sexual and sensual in their dancing. He says that this isn't the Lombarda, there's no sex in Georgian dancing, you have to be a statue you're a, you're a candle uh, you uh, have to be virginal and pure in how you dance and he obviously has an issue with that uh, because he's a very sensual dancer and uh, he 
there's an, an in, it's in set in Georgia, uh, which is a very conservative uh, sort of location, and then there's a new male dancer that arrives at the troupe and they fall in love. So there's this secret gay love affair that kind of takes place in this very conservative setting, and he explores his identity through dancing, both traditional dance forms, but there's also some beautiful sequences. There's one scene when he uh, is dancing half naked to Robin's Honey, uh, which is really wonderful, and like the sun is rising at a house party and mm. it's, it's incredible and he uh, really rebels against this authoritarian nature both in terms of identity with his sexuality but also his dance moves because with the way he dances is very sensual and very feminine as well so it's about him exploring his identity through dance and it's incredible. It's a really wonderful I film. I think I'm going to have to catch that one on your recommendation, Stewie. So, and then we danced is screening again at um, MIF on Sunday the 11th of August. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, the next film that we're going to look at that screened, uh, had its first screening on Saturday night, was um, Peter Strickland's In Fabric. Um, Peter Strickland has a bit of a retrospective going on at MIF this year. He's also selected some um, short, his short screen last night, didn't they? His short screen last yep. night and uh, Sergei Parajanov's film Shadows of Our Forgotten yes. Ancestors. So, and yeah, so he's handpicked some films at a screening and um, yeah, his latest film in Fabric Screen, which is a, basically a great film about a dress that goes around and kills people. <laughs> If that's not enough to sell you on it, I don't know what is. Um, but I I watched that on Saturday. Stuart has seen it and so has Cerise. Yes. It was a really different film to what I expected. Yeah. Like, very different, but I still thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved it. But, um, yeah, it was not what I was expecting. It was hilarious. It's particularly Julian Barrett popping up in there. He was fantastic <laughs> in it. <laughs> also known as Howard Moon in The Mighty Boosh. That was a nice treat. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed this. The soundtrack, I really I, I tried to find some stuff to play tonight, but I was having trouble getting it. Mm. It was really incredible. Um, it was a real sort of visual feast. It reminded me of lots of things, but it was also very unique at the same time. Um, this is one that I really highly recommend that you get along to if you can. Yeah, it's quite wacky. Yep. Uh, it's very quirky, I'd say. Uh, so Fatma Muhammad features in the film as well, and mm-hmm. she stars in all of Peter Strickland's films. She plays, uh, I think she's, she's Eastern European, and she's like a, a witchy sales clerk. Uh, and it's, is it set in the 70s? Yes. Uh, well, yes and no. I think actually there is a newspaper that carries a date in there somewhere. Oh, that, really? But uh, otherwise, the, the, there are so many anachronisms in the film. It's not really set in mm. a, a clear uh footing somehow in time or space but I mean you know, a shop with pneumatic tubes whizzing about the place yeah and extremely peculiar uh, gothic sales folk and um you know there's it's redolent of the 70s at some but there's other things that you just can't pin down so very easily yeah it takes all of these kind of quirks of the retail setting of the 70s and makes them really uncanny in a way particularly yeah those tubes where all the money goes up and and the language they use so the 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 
changing room is the transformational sphere, which I love. <laughs> that's fantastic. And when she's oh, um, yeah. advising people to go, uh, when their shop's closing, she says, please buy your goods and go to your homes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the less flowery yes. offerings because uh, the, the language, the play with language in this is so funny. It's so yep. fruity. But it's so difficult to quote. Yes, it seems, you'd think eminently quotable, but, yeah, try to remember any of it because it's so... Um, so uh, uh, fl- well, flowery, uh, mm. florid, florid and purple. Mm-hmm. Um, and why there are some very peculiar things going on behind the scenes in that shop. I know. <laughs> it was just... Oh, and I felt like we really just got a little taste of what was happening behind the scenes in, in the store, that not too much was revealed and lots of it was left up to our imagination. And um, Peter Strickland did do a brief introduction before the screening on Saturday and he was saying there that this was um, he. This story came to him from you know how he was you know I guess mesmerised by these stores in the seventies and wasn't sure where things were or where they went and that's kind of how he built this story up. Yeah, particularly the dumb waiter. Yeah. So where does the dumb waiter go when it love a dumb waiter? I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah. then there are elements of this film that are really rooted in almost social realist territory, including you know some very canny casting of Marianne Jean Baptiste, who's very well known from Mike Lee's Secrets and Lies. Mm-hmm. And she plays the film very straight. There are some there are some people whose performance in this are extremely arch and others who uh, respond to all the craziness around them very matter-of-factly, which just makes it all the uncannier. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because... um, Because Hayley Squires is in it and she was in a Ken Loach film. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, there is this real kind of realist... There's a kitchen sink element to this, but also a total batshit crazy element to it. Yeah, because it was saying Julian Barrett's in it before Mm. and he's definitely playing his role for laughs. Mm. So there are, yeah, these people playing it straight and these other people, you know, really sort of, I guess, playing up the comedy aspect of it, which, yeah, it works really well. It's a really beautiful film. Yeah, when Strickland's other films, um, I think we've actually covered a couple in Plato's Cave um, yesteryear. If people well, look in the Duke podcast, of Burgundy was at MIF a few couple of years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I think we would have covered it surely mm. at some point. And Barbarian Sound Studio had a very limited season at Acme some years back. Mm-hmm. Both of those films are part of the Strickland retrospective. So. Well, and Fabric has another screening coming up at the Astor, and I definitely recommend seeing this sumptuous film on that big screen. Yes. Um, his other films are all exquisitely beautiful. He's a great stylist. His films uh, are so informed by his love of cinema, especially of a, um, some of the more disreputable genres of yesteryear, but stylishly disreputable genres, whether it's the giallo or sexploitation film or peculiar Czechoslovak New Wave films like The Cremator, the extraordinary film The Cremator that he's programmed in as one of his picks this year. But um, the thing we haven't mentioned is that Strickland is actually here in, in person. Yes. Oh, you did say he did a little intro, but he'll be here to speak at a little more length and already has on, on the weekend with our fellow caver of yesteryear, Alexandra Helen Nicholas. They had a lovely, lengthy conversation. That was, at, that was great. Yeah, it was, yeah it was great at the Wheeler Centre on Saturday. And I hope if we're going to put that online. Mm. Yeah, it was being filmed. So fingers crossed I did put it up because yeah. it was a really excellent, insightful in conversation. And Cerise, you're doing some Q&As with Peter Strickland. I am. You? May they be half so infi- uh, insightful. <laughs> so this Wednesday uh, after Barbarian Sound Studio, um, I have a and a with him and I'll throw that to the the people to get a word in his ways there as well and on Friday his first feature film Cattle and Varga which is another wonderful revenge film that's a great great film it is a really great film Uh, so we'll be having Q&A's both of those Mm -hmm. nights and while Peter Strickland is adamant that he's not a great talker he is in fact 
is. He's a wonderful enthusiast uh, whose love of a lot of the same cinema I love mm. comes through in great clarity and lucidity and he's a, yeah. I, I thought that too at the in conversation that Cerise just mentioned I found him incredibly insightful and I loved hearing about he had you know was able to articulate his love of cinema so well but also um, influences from you know the typography on record covers and things like that how that's all come through in his film I found that really really incredible how he sort of brings in um, I guess you know his background and I love for kind of I think early goth music from what I can gather mm-hmm. um, into you know his cinema as well I yeah I loved listening to him I could have listened to him talk all day to be honest yeah, <laughs> he has a real talent for using creative mediums mm-hmm. and kind of cross media across crossing them into sort of other mediums and sort of yeah using their influence yeah and I should also mention that Senses of Cinema have a dossier uh, for this MIF program. So there's a whole bunch of articles there to further enrich everyone's enjoyment of this season that Alexandra, Helen, Nicholas and John Edmund have put together. And you've, you've got a piece? And I've written one on the tactile elements. There are a lot of tactile elements to his mm-hmm. films. You're meant to feel things, and whether it's uh, in fabric, you're meant to feel how lovely and slippery that dress is yeah, before that- it then attacks <laughs> and leaves nasty rashes in its slippery wake <laughs> but through, throughout his cinema there's a lot where he's I think there's a, a synesthesia at play in a lot of his films and mm-hmm. the Duke of Burgundy really brings that out and that beautiful SM romance that that film is uh, so centred around and it's a stunning film so mm-hmm. don't miss that if you've not seen it before was, was this screening at um, plenary this, the, the in fabric that you saw I, I didn't oh, I saw yes, it, it prior to that but yeah yeah Stuart and I both saw it at the plenary yeah, yeah. Um, which How- is a new venue for MIF this year. Like I said before, I think a few things are being renovated, which is an interesting space to screen a mm, film. There's, yes. I think they've got it divided up into three cinemas there. Yeah. Um, you had an experience watching a film there. Yeah, sound. so, I mean, we're going to talk about a portrait of a lady on fire yeah. in a moment, but there was some noise bleed. So we were watching a very quiet French film set in the 18th century of women, you know, dramatically painting. And we have the voices from the Australian Dream documentary next door kind of bleeding in. So the sound of Andrew yeah. Bolt's voice kind of <laughs> booming in the background. During a <laughs> I, had a, I had a similar experience on Saturday. I went to an in conversation with um, Thurston Moore and Jacinta Parsons. And it sounded like somebody was ordering Indian takeaway in the auditorium. <laughs> I don't know where that noise was coming from, but it was yeah. so distressing. Distracting. I, I felt really awful for the people on stage. Yeah. I mean, I, in the festival's defence, it's very tricky when you have to have it in the bounds of the CBD. Yeah. And there's just so few theatres that have that capacity That's to be right. able to screen these events. Yeah. Uh, so with Acme being under construction... And the region. And the comedy theatre. Yeah. And I know other festivals are and facing this as well. So the Melbourne Queen Festival. Everything's conspired against them, really. And it's also, very tricky. Yeah. Another thing that seems quite different this year is that the the forum's normally the kind of hub the meeting space and it's not open it's yeah really sad so after the beach bum i thought i'd go check out the festival hub at the forum uh not realizing that it was closed and the the capital festival hub shut at ten thirty on a saturday uh, so it, which i think part of a festival is 
The, the festivities. The community, yeah. The Absolutely. community yeah. that takes place. Yeah. A, a film festival is all about, you know, going beyond just going to the cinema and, and then going straight home afterwards. It's mm. about that community. Yeah, meeting up of, and talking with people about what you thought about yeah. the film. That's and one of the most exciting bits. If yep. there's no central hub to do that, then that it's, it's lacking, which mm. I think is a real shame. I mean, it is a joy to have the capital back in the mix in its yeah. restored form. I can't wait to... Go on. I haven't seen a screen yeah, in there yeah. yet, so yeah, I'm it's very exquisite. excited. It's, it's, there's still, I think, a little bit of fine-tuning going on there, but basically it is a wonder. It's one of the great cinemas. Um, and that salon is beautiful, and I know what it looked like a couple of years back, and it's a, a marvel that they managed to renovate it to the mm-hmm. extent they have. But if you go up there thinking, oh, I want a bit of festival club atmosphere, you'll find it kind of secluded <laughs> and um, anything but clubby it's just yeah. more now like it's a chill out space yeah, if, yeah. It, yeah maybe where you need you. to go after the nightingale Stuart <laughs> just, just <laughs> calm yeah I know calm down, down. have a, a tea and a, a cup of tea and a lie down yeah <laughs> um, if you are interested in seeing In Fabric which I think we all recommend it's screening at the Asta on Saturday the 10th um, and Peter Strickland's other films are all sort of peppered throughout the festival with Cerise doing Q&A so get a Long to be great. Plus, he's um, handpicked films like The Cremator and Trash, which I'm super, super, super excited about. Um, so check out the Myth Guide for dates for all of those. Uh, the next song that we are going to oh, we've got a giveaway before your before song. my song because Go on, Lisa. well because there is actually another festival film festival that's happening at the moment, which we should give a shout out to, and it's the Indian Film Festival of Melbourne, and that runs uh, until August 17 at cinemas and venues across Melbourne and the CBD. So this film festival. Uh, plays uh, further afield as well. I think places like Chadston, etc., lots of Hoyt cinemas. Um, and we've got a double pass to give away. Um, the festival's packed with over 60 films from India and the subcontinents, uh, and these tickets are open to use for any film screening happening across Melbourne. You just book them in. Um, and this year's festival features... Um, Shahrukh Khan, he's coming out for oh, the really? festival. Wow. They always have such great um, t- touring Bollywood stars. He's like the biggest Bollywood actor. But what do they call him? The King of Bollywood or something? Yeah. It's a very well-financed festival. It is, isn't it? It yes. is, yeah. <laughs> um, and there's lots of other, you know, keynote speakers and things to check out. Three, triple, R. Uh, we'll attempt to cover another four films in about 14 minutes. I think we can do it. Uh, the first one we're going to look at that Stewie saw was Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yes. So directed by uh, Celine Siama, uh, who directed Girlhood and Tomboy, uh, two very cool films. Uh, and so this is sent, set in the 18th century uh, on the isolated island in uh, Brittany, uh, where we have... Uh, a betrothed young woman uh, played by Adele uh, Heinel uh, who has to have her uh, engagement portrait made um, for a a Milanese uh, uh, member of the gentry uh, and she doesn't want the marriage to take place so she's refusing to sit for a portrait Uh, so uh, a female painter played by uh, Noemi Merlin uh, who arrives um, in disguise as a lady-in-waiting or a, a walking companion and so she has to secretly study her face so she can paint this portrait in private. Uh, and the two fall in love and 
it is a beautiful film. The final shot uh, took my breath away, reminding me slightly maybe of the final shot of Call Me By Your Name, oh, nice. where you just kind of sit and just marvel at, at, at the performer's uh, ability to really kind of show a range of emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, an incredible film. Great use of Vivaldi as well. Uh, Love a good bit of Vivaldi. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was... Seasons. Yeah, so that, yeah, so that um, it's, it's wonderful just... I mean, you think about people studying each other and, and, and painting dramatically would be quite dull, but it's really stunning. Mm-hmm. And if you are keen to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I am because I've heard nothing but fantastic things about it, it has two more screenings um, during MIF, which ha- screening on Saturday the 10th and Sunday the 11th of August. Um Scheme Birds is what we're going to look at next, which you saw, Lisa. I did. Uh, I was keen to see this film. It's a documentary. Um, it's made by two first-time filmmakers, actually, um, Alan Fisk and Eleanor Hallen, and they're from Sweden, but the film is actually set in Scotland. Uh, and I lived in Scotland for many years, and um, it's actually based on a town called Motherwell, which uh, is where my partner's family are from actually and it, that's that this town exists on the fringes of Glasgow uh, it's really rough it's um, sort of project based is what you'd call it in America but they call them schemes in uh, mm-hmm. Glasgow so you, you know it's used as a derogatory term over there a schemey you know yeah. um, and so scheme birds is reference to the people of, that live uh, in in the commission flats there um, the film was made over several years and it is extraordinary it's um, I actually didn't know it was a documentary. I could not tell it was a documentary for the first 20 to 30 minutes. And I think that sort of speaks to, um, you know, there's this sort of trend in making documentaries very cinematic. Sometimes that works. Sometimes I really feel like it doesn't. I remember there was a film we saw last year, Cerise, um, which was part of Haraf, the Human Rights Film Festival. It was about the ivory trade. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. It Mm. was shot beautifully, but it almost fetishised its subject matter, which was quite awful. There was this big burning of the ivory and it was... Yeah, it sat uncomfortably with me. This, however, really works. They, um, the filmmakers have made this decision. So basically it follows a young girl called Gemma um, who sort of says she's you know, living a really rough life. She was born to a drug-addicted mother and abandoned by her father as an infant and raised by her grandparents. She also happened to be born... The, the film sort of avoids politicising it overtly, but there is one sort of... Uh, point to which they do make that the year she was born was the year that they blew up the steel factory in Motherwell um because in the 80s, under Thatcherism, they decided no uh, no more steel manufacturing in Scotland. It's all going to be done in England. Uh, and it really destroyed that community. Uh, and it sort of destroyed her future as well. There are no prospects here. Mm. Um, and so she's she's living in these housing commissions flats and she says the best you can hope for here is to be locked up or knocked up. Um, and she becomes the latter uh, mm. quite quickly. Uh, but the filmmakers are extraordinary. They've filmed it over se- several years. So from the age of her, about 15 years old, I'd say, uh, and until she's about 19, um, her and her friends, and so much changes, so much happens, but you never feel the filmmaker's presence. It's really... Um they, they must have just managed to create such a safe environment for these people. They never look at the camera. Um, it's very whimsical. They sort of avoid making the film, uh, you know, because it's social realism, they don't go gritty and dark. It's actually quite um, light, 
on their subjects. The, the lighting's quite beautiful. Mm. And Scot- the light in Scotland is like that. You know, they sort of avoid making it dreary and drab. There is a beautiful light quality to Scotland, and I, and I appreciated that. that. Um, yeah, I, I just thought uh, it was a, an extraordinary film. I'd really recommend people go see it. It's only got one more screening, which is tomorrow, and it's at 4pm, so just take a sickie or something yeah. and head down to Hotel <laughs> and see it. Yeah, it's really, really great. It's called Scheme Birds. Okay, excellent. And um, Cerise, you saw as part of, I think it's part of the Night Shift program, Deerskin, which I'm seeing this weekend. I'm really excited about it. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, I've actually just realised we could have had a segue from Portrait of a Lady on Fire because the actress is in this, Adele Hanel, is her name? Yeah, Yeah. I'm not really terribly familiar with, but I knew that name was familiar as soon as you said it. Yeah, The Unknown Girl, the Mm. Dardan Brothers, uh, BPM. Mm. Um, So she's been in quite a lot. She sounds like she's a rising star. Uh, This film won't exactly make her any greater a star this is a, an oddball <laughs> little entry in anybody's filmography but then it has a huge star in the lead Jean Dujardin yeah. did he not win an Oscar for the artist or he was at least he an did, Oscar winning he did I think yeah, he did I'm sure yeah. he did an extremely charismatic handsome actor who looks pretty ragged here and looks increasingly silly in the course of the film because he becomes obsessed with deerskin in particular beginning with a jacket and then becomes convinced that the jacket um, is advising him to make sure that nobody else can have a jacket that he will be the only person possessed <laughs> of a jacket uh, anywhere but beginning in this remote little village somewhere um, and uh, this uh, Adele Hanel for want of a better pronunciation becomes his accomplice in making a film and he sort of gets cornered into a fib about being a filmmaker and it's just this an absurdist comedy from the same oddball who previously made a film about a psychopathic tire rubber um which is hilarious psychopathic telekinetic tire and the fantastic um wrong cops as well which i love too i i I love him. I think he's a fantastic yeah. Quentin uh, <laughs> uh Also known as uh, electronic musician Mr. Oizo. Mm. Uh, this film's tons of fun and uh, a little bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of desk. It's a very brown film. It's almost as if the whole thing's shot through a desk and filter. Oh. It, it's a singularly brown accomplishment. <laughs> and I don't use such terms lightly. Um, Deerskin is screening this Friday night at 11.30pm, I think, which I'm going to be at. Can't wait. Very excited to see it. Um, One more that we're going to look at tonight, well, maybe two if we've got time, uh, is a documentary called You Don't Know Me, which is a documentary about Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls, which... I laughed I'll just be, thinking I'll be, about it. I'll be um, straight up here. Showgirls is one of my all-time favourite films. That does not it's, surprise me. It's, it's, com- it's comfort food for me. Shocked. I'm having a bad day. I'll put on Showgirls. So I was really excited to see this. And also, um, it's interesting because there's a Jeffrey Schwartz who made I Am Divine and Tab um, Hunter Confidential. He makes excellent documentaries. He's in post-production about for another documentary about Showgirls oh, called Goddess. Wow. It's the Zeitgeist. Everything's in, in twos. Um, so not only are we blessed with one Showgirls documentary, <laughs> but we've got another one on the way. 
<laughs> so, yeah, You Don't Know Me looks at, I guess, the shit wreck that was Showgirls when it was released in uh, 95. Uh, and I, I think you'll find it was winner of three awards. Three uh, Razzies. Three Razzies, Worst <laughs> Actress, Screenplay and Song. And, and Paul Verhoeven went to collect the awards yeah. at the Razzies. Which is, shows a sign of good humour. Yeah, so it, it, it traces Showgirls' journey from being cited as the worst film ever made to it being celebrated now and the yeah it is a pretty interesting journey um one thing i would have like i I did really enjoy this documentary one thing i would have liked to have seen a bit more in it was a bit more of um how this really destroyed elizabeth berkeley yeah it completely ruined her career and how that she was crucified for this film um and at this really interesting time in america when you know, Monica Lewinsky, all this sort of stuff. So there were these young women that were being very publicly crucified and their entire lives sort of destroyed. Shamed. Um, and it was all around sex. Yep. Yeah. And she, uh, she was definitely one of them. Yeah. Um, so I would have really liked that to have been explored more. Do you know, I've got an yep. interesting side note about it. So Paul Verhoeven, the director, who's also the director of Robocop, Total Recall, Basic Instinct, um, and before that had a very stellar career in Europe, but um, had made all these big Hollywood blockbusters. So there's a lot of expectation on this film, which was is really like a trashy midday movie about a girl wanting to make it in um, Vegas uh, as a showgirl. Um, uh, but yeah, he said that the, her acting in it, so Elizabeth Berkeley, uh, her previous credit was Saved by the Bell, which was a sitcom, a high school sitcom. Um, her performance in it is so bizarre and ridiculous. Every sort of response is heightened to 100. Uh, it makes no sense. But he said that that was his directing and he feels terrible for her and that um, Charlize Theron was actually pegged for the role but couldn't do it because she didn't have a big enough name at the time. And he said it really saved her career. She, that would have been a bullet to her career <laughs> but instead it was um, poor Elizabeth yeah. that really got oh. that one. But Gina Gershon didn't suffer in the same no, way. No, she no, didn't. Not at all. But I guess she had more of a filmic history than Elizabeth yeah. did and, and wasn't the central figure. Yeah, yeah. I also somehow sense she might be less of a, a pushover. I yeah. think Gina Gershon doesn't take anyone's shit. Yeah. It's mm. something I've always... Mm. She's always put out there, mm. part of her persona. The, the, the thing I loved about this film was that it's it sort of like... It, it looks... I think I'm sort of sort of um, summarising somebody else's opinion in this film, but they say it's like a piece of shit that over time becomes claimed as a masterpiece, um, and which is like the reverse of films like Forrest Gump and American Beauty. Yeah, they, yeah I really enjoyed Yeah, I, I just thought, yes, I freaking hate those movies. Yes, and over time, those films do reveal themselves to be the pieces of shit that they are, yeah. uh, that people weren't really <laughs> possibly aware of at the time. Well, not all people, but, you know, mm. I thought that was really kind of wonderful. Um, and it was, I thought there was some really interesting uh, filmmaking techniques. They used a lot of Verhoeven's archival footage to um, illustrate what people were saying about this current film, and they'd intercut that with so they'd intercut like RoboCop with Showgirls to illustrate a point. And it was it was it gave it context, and it was quite humorous as well. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that to begin with. It I found it a little irritating, Did but you? then I went with it. It was yeah, good. yeah. I think they needed something. Yeah. you know, they needed to do it in a visual way. It's a film, so <laughs> you don't know me. If uh, you're a show and that's N O M I, as in the lead character's name, Nomi, or yeah. Klaus Nomi. Yeah, like Klaus I actually Nomi. hoped it was going to be a doco on Klaus Nomi. <laughs> yeah, that's that would overdue. be equally. There is that really good Klaus Nomi doco. Oh, we'll talk that. about it later. Okay. I've got a copy of it. Um, <laughs> so you don't know me is screening twice at MIF. It's on Saturday the 10th and Saturday the 17th. Um, Stewie, have you got 
quick time for your four-word review. My four-word review. <laughs> I wrote four words um, about Matthias and Maxim and uh, Xavier Dolan's new film. Um, they are masculinity, love, Titanic and Britney. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, like a passionate moment that I think is inspired by Titanic. Xavier Dolan is a huge Leonardo DiCaprio fan. Uh, Britney Spears is thanked in the credits. Her song Work Bitch features <laughs> in a strip club. Um, and it's about two kind of male bro friends that fall in love. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> great film. Really great film. <laughs> so you have been listening to our first of two MIF specials on 3RRR with Cerise Howard, Lisa Kovacevic, Stuart Richards and myself, Sally Christie. Every film that we have talked about tonight is still screening at MIF, so check the um, program guide for details. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.